Amen. Thank you. I'm going to start by reading two articles from the Hope City Church Statement of Faith. If you are not familiar with it, it's on the, it's on the website. Um, if you look under About and drop down, there's a button called Doctrine. You can click that. And I'm going to begin by reading you two of the articles from our Statement of Faith there. Can you all see the screen? Okay. Excellent. This first article is Article 1, and I'm going to read it to you. It's about Scripture. We believe the Bible to be the written revelation of God, complete and sufficient in all respects. We believe the Scriptures to be God-breathed and therefore fully authoritative in and of themselves. They rely for their authority upon no church, council, or creed, but are authoritative simply because they are the Word of God. The Scriptures, as they embody the very speaking of God, partake of His authority and power. We have a statement of faith that affirms the absolute sufficiency of the Scriptures as God's Word to you, His church. And so, as a church, as a body of Christ, we are convinced that what you need each week to grow as a Christian and to become mature and to operate in all that God has given you, what you need is to be fed on God's Word. On God's Word. And so we have no hesitation in going verse by verse through the Scriptures in our preaching. I don't have to worry each week, oh, I don't have a word from the Lord, because I do have a word from the Lord. It's in the 66 books of the Bible. And all I need to do is faithfully represent that word under the power of the Holy Spirit. And I can guarantee that those of you who are here who are elect of God will grow in your faith. It's an equation that never fails. The word of God plus the born again believer equals maturity in the things of God. It never fails. I don't need to worry if I have a word from God. It has been given. And so that is our statement of faith on the infallibility, say infallibility, it's Sunday morning and we need to wake up a little bit, so we're going to say that word together, infallibility of the Word of God, meaning it shall never fail, it can never fail, because it is not the Word of man, though it was penned by men, the ultimate author is not men, but is the Holy Spirit, as the Apostle Peter said, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that is the statement of faith about Scripture in this church. The next article I'm going to read to you is Article 8 of the Hope City Church Statement of Faith, which concerns the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read it to you. The gifts of the Holy Spirit that we see on display in the New Testament are still active within the life of the church. These gifts did not end with the close of the New Testament or the death of the last apostle. This is the Hope City Church statement on the doctrine of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now there are some today that can't understand how it is that we as a church could hold to both of those statements. 
There are some that would say, well, if you believe in the absolute sufficiency of God's Word, if you believe that what people need is to hear God's Word preached, to believe God's Word, and to stand upon it as the truth in order to grow, then you need no other ingredient in order to grow people. You don't need the gifts. So why is it that you believe in things like prophecy, in in healing, in all these other things, if you believe the Word of God is sufficient? Surely if you believe in the gifts of the Spirit, you're saying the Word of God is not sufficient. And there are others on the other side of the debate who would maybe say, if you believe in the gifts of the Spirit and you believe that they are for the upbuilding of the church and that it is through those gifts that the Holy Spirit works, why needlessly go through the Scriptures verse by verse and bore everybody to death every Sunday? Why do we need to have a preach slot? Can't we just have holy chaos and carnage and everybody could just say their bit and we can all be laid out in the Holy Spirit? Why go to the lengths of creating all these intricate doctrinal statements about the Word of God? Can't we just operate in the gifts? I don't believe, brothers and sisters, that there is any inconsistency at all in believing both the doctrine of the infallibility of Scripture that Scripture is God's Word, and nothing can change that. I don't see any conflict between believing that and believing also that God, through the Holy Spirit, is still today giving gifts to His church and is still operational in those gifts for the upbuilding of the church. I don't believe there's any inconsistency. Why? Because I have arrived at these positions, and the church here, the leadership, has arrived at these two positions Because of the Scriptures, because of the Scriptures, we hold to a view called Sola Scriptura. Anybody heard of Sola Scriptura? Put your hand up if you've heard of that. Anybody venture to tell me what it means? Thank you, Dad. Scripture alone. In Scripture alone. And so this is one of the five solas of the Reformation. There are five of them. There is Sola Scriptura, Sola Gracia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus and Soli Dio Gloria. And these are the five heart cries of the Reformers. And Sola Scriptura simply means this. It means that Scripture alone is the ultimate authority over your faith. It means Scripture alone, not the writings of Pastor Graham Phillips, not your favorite Christian author, But Scripture, the 66 books of the canon of the Bible, and Scripture alone have the authority to dictate what you ought to believe and what you ought to reject. Does that make sense? Is that that good? So what Sola Scriptura doesn't mean is this. I think many people misunderstand it, and they say, also, you, you don't take into account anything else but Scripture. You're not interested in what they taught in church history. You're not interested in the creeds and the confessions. I say, no, that's that's different. That's a misunderstanding of sola scriptura. And I do worry that these days, many of us here in the evangelical church in the West have gone too far, and now we don't believe sola scriptura, but we believe solo scriptura, which is different. That means only scripture. Only scripture, and we will not take any other authority at all into the equation. So, for example, people that would say, well, I believe in three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus is a God, 
The Father is a God and the Holy Spirit is a God. I said, where have you got that from? From the Bible. Right, okay. But that's not how people have understood that for 2,000 years of church history. Well, I don't listen to any other authority than my interpretation of the Scriptures. You see, that's not sola scriptura. That's something else. We have to take into account, brothers and sisters, what has gone before us. That's why, as a pastor, I don't necessarily agree with every commentary I read, but I must read them because brighter and more intelligent people who are spirit-filled have gone before me, have studied these same scriptures, and they might have things to say and insight to give that I maybe didn't pick up on. So I'm going to read that. But it doesn't mean that that commentary has the same authority as scripture, does it? Because it's not God's word. But it is going to help me to understand it. So we take on board the creeds and the confessions. That's why we do those in this church. They are important. They are a witness from church history. The witness of the activity of the Holy Spirit in 2,000 years of church history. We don't want to ignore that. We don't want to throw that out. We want to take that on board. But each statement and every creed and confession must be weighed against the revelation of Scripture to see if it is true. Okay? Scripture is the highest authority. And because of that... We believe not just in the authority of Scripture, but in the fact that the Holy Spirit is still, in this day and age, giving the gifts today. I think it's sad to me that things have become so polarized in the body of Christ today. I'm going to try not to rattle on and on and on about this because I don't have the time and it will bore you to tears. But it breaks my heart, the division in the church over the gifts Because on the one side, if you say you believe in the gifts for today, immediately you're Benny Hinn. Or you're Kenneth Copeland. You're a radical. You're a nutter. But if you want to just bring a bit of nuance to the gifts, and if you want to teach the Bible every Sunday, then you must be a John MacArthur. You must deny every gift. And I just say to that, that's nonsense. That's polarity in the body of Christ. I believe because of Scripture that God's Word is sufficient and is able to build you up in your faith, but I also believe God has given each one of you gifts that ought to be utilized in the church. There are many, I want to tell you this, there are many modern biblical scholars and pastors who are committed to both the Word and the spiritual gifts. Do not believe the lie that all the scholars are on one side and not on the other. And do not believe the lie that the Holy Spirit is only in one side and not on the other. Has anybody heard of John Piper? John Piper is one of my favorite preachers of the Word of God. If you don't listen to John Piper, Google John Piper. When you get home, go listen to his sermon. He's one of the greatest preachers of the age. John Piper believes in both the authority of Scripture and the absolute sovereignty of God and in the continuation of the miraculous gifts today. So too does a man named D.A. Carson, one of the greatest biblical scholars of our time, believes in both the infallibility of the Word of God and the absolute sovereignty of God, but also the continuation of the gifts of the Spirit as does Wayne Grudem, another biblical scholar. If you have his systematic theology, it's well worth reading. Sam Storms, Gavin Ortland, these are all 
men who are excellent Bible teachers but also believe in the gifts today. I believe in the gifts and the continuance of them because of Scripture. Because of Scripture. I, if they have ceased, right, if all the gifts have ceased, I don't even believe, not even cessationists believe that all the gifts have ceased. I hope you realize that. Even cessationists believe that some gifts continue, like teaching, being a shepherd, gifts of service. Nobody in the church believes that all the gifts have ceased. The question is around what the, the so-called sign gifts, the, the, the gifts of prophecy, the miracle gifts, healing, whatever they are. My issue is that Scripture nowhere makes any delineation between ordinary gifts and sign gifts. There's no distinction in Scripture. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14.1, the Apostle Paul says, pursue love. How many of you are pursuing love in your relationships? I, I find that difficult sometimes. I don't know about you, but without the power of the Holy Spirit, I find it extremely challenging sometimes to pursue love in difficult relationships. And Paul says, pursue love. The word there, of course, agape, which is where we get our word charity from, ultimately. Are you charitable in your relationships with people? Some people are just not very easy to be charitable with, are they? Paul says, be loving, pursue love, pursue charity, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Earnestly. Do you know what earnestly is? Seriously. Seriously pursue. Take seriously your pursuit of the spiritual gifts. But not just that, he says, especially that you may prophesy especially that you may prophesy. Now, that's one of the so-called sign gifts. Now, here we have a command from the Word of God that we ought to pursue the spiritual gifts earnestly and seriously. Go after them, and especially the gift of prophecy. Now, unless I see a direct command in the New Testament that tells me, by the way, at the end of the first century, stop pursuing prophecy then I must continue to pursue it. Does that make sense? If it's right to pursue the spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, then it is wrong not to. Is that clear? If the Bible teaches it's right to pursue the gifts, especially prophecy, then it's wrong not to. Now, I'm not saying that the division between cessationism and continuationism, I don't think that's a first order issue. I try and be peaceable about this because I have friends on both sides. I have many faithful brothers who are cessationists who I love and I meet with regularly and they encourage me. And I don't think we want to make this a Christian vs. non-Christian or a spirit people versus non-spirit people thing. But this is my conviction is that the Bible tells me I've got to pursue these things. And it tells you you've got to pursue them. And so in this church, we're going to pursue the spiritual gifts. In this church, we're not going to be ashamed about prophecy. We're going to do our best to pursue the Holy Spirit and to see those gifts manifest in the church. There is, of course, a claim from some that the Bible does actually teach that the gifts have ceased. Are you all still with me? Everybody okay? 
There are some that claim that in the very same book that we're reading from today, that there is a verse that teaches the cessation of the gifts. And to that, I would agree. But let's just check what it says. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 10. I'm not going to put it up on the screen, so I'm going to read it to you. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 10 says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, I do think that teaches that the gifts will at some point cease when this so-called perfect arrives. Because they are partial revelations. Now, I think there are many cessationists that say, well, the perfect is in regards to Scripture. When the canon of the New Testament is complete and you have your New Testament, then the gifts will cease. But is that what the Apostle Paul was talking about? I think it seems a bit of a stretch to read into that passage that Paul is talking about the future bringing together of the New Testament canon. I think it seems far more likely that Paul here is talking about the return of Christ. See, later on in verse 12, there's a phrase. He says, then we shall see face to face. Face to face. That's talking about us being face to face with Christ. Now, when we're face to face with Christ, why would we need prophecy? Why would we need tongues? Why would we need any revelatory gift when we're face to face with Christ in glory? The church will be upbuilt. There's no need for them then. Do you see what I'm saying? But right now, Jesus hasn't returned. And the need for the gifts remains. To be clear, again, cessationists don't believe that all the gifts have ceased. They just believe the so-called sign gifts have ceased. But I don't see any distinction in Scripture between ordinary gifts and sign gifts. I only see the gifts, and I only see a command to pursue them. So on the evidence of Scripture, I'm going to move on now so that we don't just get bogged down in all this detail. But on the evidence of Scripture, we are to eagerly pursue spiritual gifts. Eagerly pursue spiritual gifts. First Thessalonians 5, of course, says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Now, in coming weeks, we're going to talk about the various gifts that God has given through His Spirit to the church. And we're going to talk about the importance of all of those gifts, not just one or two but the absolute necessity of them all and the fact that Paul says that the church is a body and the gifts are like parts of a body. And in the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church was very much like the modern charismatic church here in the West. They loved the gifts. They were operating in the gifts. In all the supernatural signs and wonders, they were operating in all of it. But Paul is rebuking them because they had turned the gifts into identity symbols, symbols of status. There were some that were posturing that they were holier than now because they spoke in tongues. I speak in more tongues than you. I speak more often in tongues. You know, I, I prophesy. I have all the nine gifts. 
We see people posturing like this today, don't we? But interestingly, Paul doesn't rebuke them and say, please stop using the gifts. He doesn't say to them, you've gone wrong, stop using the gifts. No, he teaches them that each of the gifts has its own important part to play and that they're to honor each gift. So in this church, we're going to honor the gift of prophecy and we're going to give it room to breathe in whatever way we can but we're also going to give honor to the gift of discerning of spirits. And if there is one gift of the Spirit in the charismatic church today that's despised above all, it's discernment. But it is a gift of the Spirit. And it's needful. Just as much as tongues or prophecy is. So we're going to look into that in the coming weeks. But today, we're just going to go through some basics to ground our understanding, and then we're going to take some time in ministry We're going to see what the Lord wants to do and just operate today in word of knowledge and ministry of healing and see what God will will do today. Is that okay? So let's get our understanding grounded first before we dive into operating. So, oh, I supposed to, there we go. What are the spiritual gifts? What are they? Well, in verse 7, Paul says that the spiritual gifts aren't actual entities. They're not things that are given to you apart from the Holy Spirit. Okay? The gift of tongues, for example, is not something. It's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in you. So a gift of the Spirit is not something other than God, but is actually God at work in and through you. You're like an instrument that God is playing. And you know how different instruments sound different. They have a different timbre, that we say in music, a different sound, a different texture. It's the same with humans. When God gets upon their life, when God moves through them, there is a certain timbre that is different among all of you. All of you have a slightly different sound, so to speak. And that is like the gifts. They are a manifestation of God upon your life life. Secondly, spiritual gifts are not just given to pastors. They're not just given to elders. They're not just given to super Christians, but they are given to each and every Christian. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each. I want you to really circle that word in your Bible. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. So in this church, we don't believe in super-Christians. We don't believe in a two-tier church where there are some haves and some have-nots. Every Christian is born again. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit indwelling within them. And every Christian is actually given a gift, at least one gift, and we'll look into this in coming weeks. Can you have more than one gift? I would say yes. Each Christian is given gifts from the Holy Spirit. Some are given more than others, and we'll look into that too. Others are given gifts liberally. Others seemingly a less so amount. God is sovereign over the giving of his gifts, but each and every Christian is given a gift, and each and every Christian is required to use that gift. Thirdly, why are the gifts given? They're given for the common good, Paul says. The common good. 
So your gift, ultimately, is not just for you. It's not just for your own personal enjoyment. But it's for others here in the church. We need your gift. God has given you that gift for the benefit of us. And if you don't bring it and give it, well, it's not just you who's the poorer for it. It's us. So your gift is given to you for the benefit of others, for the common good. Now we're going to get technical. Are you ready? We're going to get technical, and we're going to look at four Greek words that Paul uses in this chapter of Corinthians. He uses four different Greek words to describe the same thing. Four different words to describe spiritual gifts, and each has a slightly different meaning, which helps us to understand their purpose, their origin, why we are given them, and how we are given them, and what we're to do with them, how we're to steward the spiritual gifts. Each of these Greek words gives us a slightly different flavor, okay? You ready to taste some Greek words? Get your understanding correct on the gifts of the Spirit. Okay, let's begin. Four Greek words that help us to understand more. Number one, tone pneumaticone. Can you say that? Pneumaticone. Pneumaticone. And that means, literally, that's the, the, you know, at the top of this passage where Paul says concerning the spiritual gifts, well, the word gifts actually isn't there. What he literally says is concerning the spirituals. (laughs) It doesn't make sense in English. So we add the word gifts because we know that's what he means, okay? Concerning the spirituals. The spirituals. What a strange thing to say. What does that have to tell us about the gifts of the Spirit? Well, it tells us this. The gifts of the Spirit have their origin not in you, but in the Holy Spirit. They are spiritual gifts derived from the Spirit of God. They're not naturally resident in you. It's not that they are just in you from birth and you just need to stir them up. They're actually belonging to God, but given to you. They are spiritual. Secondly, they're not natural talents. Okay? Spiritual gifts are not simply natural abilities, but they are given spiritually to every Christian. Now, I want to make a, a, a very short clarification here, because though the spiritual gifts are not just natural abilities, some spiritual gifts do make use of natural abilities. And I want to say this as well. I hate the phrase natural abilities. Because is any ability or talent truly ever natural? I believe that God gives all good gifts, doesn't he? And in his sovereignty, each one of you has a particular skill set that yes, you had to work for and yes, you have a natural, in a so to speak way, proclivity for. Okay, Each of you has that, I know you. And there are some of you who can do things that none of us can do. You do things better than all of us. And that's just kind of the way that you're built, in a sense. But God has ordained that thing. And some gifts make use of those natural abilities. Let's take Paul, for example. The Apostle Paul wrote much of the New Testament. And even secular scholars, even non-believing people can read the book of Romans and go, this guy knew how to reason. This guy was clearly a student of Aristotelian logic. He can build an argument. That's what Romans is. I hate 
when people will just take a verse out of Romans and just rip it out of its context and say, here's, here's my verse, here's my life verse. Okay, have your life verse. But listen, the book of Romans is one long linear argument. It's a logical argument. It's premise upon premise upon premise upon premise. You've got to read the whole book through. Paul is a master logician. He's a man who could reason. That didn't just magically happen to him. We got born again, though, did it? He studied under the feet of Gamaliel, one of the scribes, one of the great teachers in Jerusalem. He was also a Roman citizen. We can well imagine he was familiar with Greek poetry. He was familiar with the writings of the philosophers. Paul was a well-educated man, and God utilized those, national, those natural, so to speak, giftings to then, to then operate in his spiritual gifting, which was teaching and apostleship. So you can see how the natural can sometimes mix with the spiritual. The same with teaching, okay? God will utilize in a teacher, my gift is teaching, I believe, God will utilize certain abilities that God has given in me or grown in me over 30-odd years. I'm going to tell you how old I am. It's embarrassing at this stage, but he is using those natural abilities and things that he's given me for the spiritual gift, but not every gift is the same, okay? So they're spiritual, they're spiritual. The second Greek word that Paul uses is in verse 4. This one is charismaton. Can you say charismaton? Or charisma. That's where that word comes from. Charisma, okay? Charisma just means gift. Charismaton means gifts. It's just plural, okay? And it's closely related to the other Greek word, charis. Anybody know somebody called charis? We all know a charis, don't we? A Welsh charis from somewhere. Charis means grace. Means grace. And so a gift, therefore, is what? It's a gift of grace. And what is grace? It's when you receive something you don't deserve, isn't it? We always like to make the short people know the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Grace is when you get something you don't deserve. Does that make sense? And so the spiritual gifts are gifts of grace. They're things that you receive. At Christmas time, you don't... I know people like to say, Santa won't visit if you've been a naughty boy or a girl. But listen, you never earn those gifts, do you? They're given to you. There's no three-step payment after Christmas where your kids are made to go and do chores to earn their Christmas presents. No, they're given them. They're free gifts of grace. And the gifts of the Spirit are the same. They're given to you, given to the church by God as a love gift, a free gift. Okay? You can't purchase a spiritual gift. You can't. Now, people, people looking at me like, well, look, yeah, of course you can't purchase a spiritual gift. Who's going to do that? Who's going to go purchase? Well, let me show you in Scripture. In Acts 8, there's a sorcerer, a guy called Simon. And when he saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money. He offered them money and he said, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, so kind and nice, isn't it, Peter? He said, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You cannot purchase the spiritual gifts. You can't pay to sign up to a supernatural school of ministry 
in order to purchase the gift of prophecy. Now, I say this as a man who used to run a supernatural school of ministry. So the fingers are pointing this way. You, you can't pay for a spiritual gift. Secondly, nobody can teach you a spiritual gift. If it's a gift, you can't naturally teach yourself to operate in the gift of prophecy. Okay? Since God is sovereign over it and he gives the gifts. Now, I want to say this. Again, we have to be nuanced. You can't buy a spiritual gift. You can't learn a spiritual gift through natural means. You can't teach somebody a spiritual gift. They're given. However, you can practice them. Do you see there's a slight difference there? You can't, I can't pull all of you into a classroom and go, right, I'm going to teach you all to prophesy. By the time you leave, you'll all be able to prophesy. Believe me, I used to do that. But I realize now that's not how it works. However, I can, if I have the gift of prophecy, I can and should practice that gift. And if I don't practice it, then it's not going to benefit anybody, is it? It's not magic. So we are allowed to practice spiritual gifts. We should be given opportunity to practice them. Okay? And that's how we find out if we have them, isn't it? If we, op- if we think, maybe God has given me the gift of prophecy. Maybe he's got, I don't know. Sometimes you might get the feeling he has. But then you stand up and you prophesy multiple times over people. And every time they're like, it's horribly wrong. It's offensive. It's really upset me. Maybe that's not your gift. Do you see what I'm saying? So you can practice them, but you can't learn them like you'd learn the violin. Okay? We can become more proficient in a gift. If we have received the gift, we can become more proficient in the gift. But you can't be taught it. You can't buy it. Okay? You can't earn it. And just because somebody might be a very good teacher of the Word of God, it doesn't mean that they've got all the rest of the gifts as well. It might be a horrible prophetic voice. It might have no kind of prophetic edge to them. But that's how God has apportioned it. He's done it sovereignly. 1 Corinthians 12 says, All these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. God is sovereign over the gifts. Try and run through these before we finish. The third word that he uses is diakonon. Sorry, diakonion. Diakonion. Now, that's in verse 5. And that word means service. Service or ministry. So spiritual gifts are gifts of service. They're gifts of ministry. And the word diakonion relates to another word, Diaconus, which means servant in the Bible. Servant. That's where we get the word deacon from in church. It means servant. Now, sadly, we see many in the church these days using their gifts not to serve, but to be served. Making their gifts go to work for them, to get them finance, to get them profile, to get them influence, to get them more followers on Instagram or YouTube or wherever. But listen, God says the gifts are for service. They are to minister to others. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13 says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Gifts are for the building up of the church. Yes, they benefit you when you use them. There's no getting away from that. 
If you give somebody a word and it speaks right into their heart, isn't that just so encouraging? It does bless you, but actually the ultimate benefit is for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of, good, of God. They're for the building up of the church. Now some gifts, again we've got to be nuanced, some gifts of the Spirit also come with offices. An office is an official position ordained by Scripture within the church. So for example, shepherd, which is pastor. The word pastor means shepherd. That is not just a gift of the Spirit that Paul lists, but it also has a functioning office within the church. Now you can be of sorts a shepherd and not necessarily have the office, but there is an office of shepherd. But there are other gifts that don't have offices, but they are just as necessary. For example, the, the gift of healing, for example. The gift of healing is given and people, certain people, I know people in this church operate in that gift to one degree or another. But there's no office for the gift of healing, is there? Okay? So there's, we've got to be able to delineate between which have offices and which don't. But they're all to serve. They're all ministries in a sense. The fourth word is enigmaton. Enigmaton, that's it. It's a difficult one to say. And this one means activity, operations, or workings. So I'm going to finish on this. And I'm just going to say spiritual gifts are to be active. Spiritual gifts are given to operate. They are given to go to work. You know, in the book of Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, he says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Why? Maybe Timothy had become depressed. Maybe he had become dis disencouraged and he had let his gift lay dormant. And Paul says, you need to fan that gift into flame. Just because you at one point in your life have operated in a particular gift doesn't necessarily mean you'll always operate in that gift at the same level. Sometimes for whatever reason, that gift can lay dormant, it become inactive, you can become out of practice in that gift. And for other reasons, sometimes God gives an extra measure of his presence to you and there's an extra manifestation of that gift at different times. He's sovereign over the giving of the gifts. But if we willingly remove ourselves from community, if we don't show up to church ever, then how is that spiritual gift ever going to get used? How is it ever going to be active? How is it ever going to serve others? Well, it won't. And you'll be left like Timothy with a gift which is not on fire. It's like a coal, an ember that needs to be fanned into flame again. It's only going to happen when you get around other brothers and sisters in Christ. So gifts become dormant when they are not active. Gifts become dormant when they are not operational or working. And gifts are for use within the body of Christ. Not, spiritual gifts are not active out in the world in the workplace. That's another clear distinction to make. They are active in the body of Christ. So how do you find out what gift is your gift? How do you know this is where I'm gifted? Well, this is something we can talk about more in the coming weeks. But I would say this. Find a place where you can serve. Find a place where you can be active. Whatever it is. However it is in the body of Christ, in this church whether it's just coming alongside people each week and encouraging them. I know that that's a gift that I have. Another, I'm an encourager. 
I just find one person and I just tell them something that they're good at. Throw an arm around their shoulder. Go for coffee with them. Encourage them. Pray with them. Maybe you're an encourager like me. Find a way to use that gift. Maybe you think, God's given me the gift of prophecy. In your small group, take a moment and say, I'm not sure, but you might want to weigh this, but I had this sense that God might be wanting to encourage you in this direction. Maybe you're like, Darren, Darren dreams dreams all the time, and he comes to me and he'll say, I've I've had a dream, don't freak out, and he'll tell me the dream, and together we'll pray and see what God might be saying through it. Maybe you're a dreamer of dreams. Maybe you're an interpreter of dreams. You're a Joseph, okay? These things we only find out through serving others. Unless we're willing to come and serve others, we won't know what gift we have. We have to be like our Lord, who Matthew 20, 28 says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's the reason why any of us have a gift in this place is that our Lord Jesus Christ came not to be served by you, but to serve you. And here today, again, you're sat being served by him once more. Ministered to by his word, washed by his word. And so can we be like our Lord? Can we be more like Jesus in the way that we use our spiritual gifts? Can we lay our life down as a ransom for others? Can we consider others greater and better than ourselves and use what God has given us to serve them? Can we be willing to put ourselves out there and maybe even risk looking a little bit foolish that God may use us? I'm going to invite